This is a podcast from 2MBS Spine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today has performed on Australian stage and screen for 20 years. Amber McMahon has been part of such iconic Australian stories as Picnic at Hanging Rock and Gallipoli and has also worked with Kate Blanchett at the Sydney Theatre Company. She's won three Helpman Awards and plenty of nominations, one of which is for the role she's in Sydney now to perform, the femme fatale role of Eve Kendall in a stage adaptation of Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Anna McMahon, a warm welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you, Simon. It's lovely to be here. Eva Marie Saint, eat your heart out. It must be quite something to take on a role like this. It is. When this production was first sort of mooted, there was a development uh, that was happening in uh, Brisbane and Simon Phillips got a bunch of actors together. He's the director of this Yeah, our our director, yeah. And he got a bunch of actors to just sort of road test the material basically. And so when I got that call, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm a diminutive brunette. Um, I think I'll just be, you know, an actor in the room to muck around and help. To read some lines. Yeah, yeah. read lines and help put (laughs) life into the script and I read uh, I watched the the film the night before and just like totally fell in love with it and particularly the role of Eve and I just sort of like really understood I guess her rhythms and sort of like the sort of complexity of the role and uh, so we did this workshop and I don't know there was just a gelling with the material and um, and the team was working really well together so I was both surprised and delighted when I got the call to say that uh, Simon would like me to play the role mm. itself yeah so I mean just to fill people in though I mean we might like to think that we get everything first in Sydney but we don't no. because you've actually been playing this role well on and off obviously for five yeah, years yeah 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 we um, our first production was with the Melbourne Theatre Company and uh, it was a, a sort of co-production with um, K. McLean, which is a commercial company that Simon often works with as well. And so we did uh, our first season uh, as part of the MTC season, and Mm. then we had a return season the following year in Melbourne, um, moving to a bigger theatre at the Arts Centre. And at that point, it shifted from an MTC production to the commercial production. Mm. And then, um, then the show went to the UK and a full uh, UK cast did it in Bath. Oh, so you didn't get to do that? No, I'm I was sad. so bummed. <laughs> we all were. Oh, it was, yeah. Um, but they did, um, yeah, uh, Bath and then Toronto and it was sort of like edging towards a West End season. Um but the timing just didn't work out. And then we did another two seasons in Adelaide and Brisbane and half of the UK cast came out for uh, for that run and that was fantastic because, you know, every time you do this show and you've got uh, new cast members because it's such an incredibly huge ensemble production, mm. um, it sort of breathes new life into it and you see these, you know, different nuanced characters popping up and, I mean, like there are so many characters in in the play and the, and the films so all of those extra roles are present in our production as well. So you've got people like running off stage, whacking another hat on, coming on with a moustache to be someone yeah. else for like two seconds. So it is one of those delightful things where the same five people yeah, are playing. Exactly. 
Yeah, because I love that. Yeah. It's always great yeah. part of, of theatre. And we've got David Campbell as uh, Cary Grant. Yes, effectively. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're very lucky to have him. Um, yeah, I mean, he's made an entire career out of wearing a suit pretty well. So he just, you know, drops into the role beautifully. He's a well-tailored man. I mean, when you're playing a part like this, which is famous for a particular performance, for a particular film, how do you approach it? I mean, do you, do you try and ignore the film or do you end up watching it like a million times? Um, I've watched it a few times, but it's not to mimic the film. I, I watch it because I love it. So... Mm. Um, so you were already familiar with it? Uh, I had been, like, I think I'd watched it when I was little. Mm. But, yeah, re-watching it, I was just blown away by the sort of eye for detail and this glorious style that it has and um, something that's just purely serving genre. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I watch it to kind of fall in love with it, basically, and then I take from that ideas of style, the function of the role within the narrative... And also I think people identify with Hitchcock, like a certain aesthetic and feel. Mm. It's like that mounting tension all the time. And so for me it's sort of mainlining that, so how to craft the character so that it sort of sits just outside of reality but we still see her humanity and poise and grace and style and charm. Mm. So without giving too much away about staging, I mean, mm. I have to ask, I mean, there's, you know, biplanes attacking yes. the lead in, in cornfields and there's mm. Mount Rushmore and how, how's that, how, I want to know something, <laughs> feed yeah, me something. It's, it's certainly the question we always get asked, like how do you put a crop duster on stage? How does one scale Mount Rushmore? And this is Simon, like Simon has just been ingenious around this uh, and that first development was all about working out a way to put those things on stage and mm. he knew that if he couldn't do that there was no production because the last thing you want is a film put on stage for no real benefit to the stage and this makes use of the theatre so beautifully and in such clever ways. So I don't want to give too much away because <laughs> the, these moments are, are of pure delight to the audience because they're thinking how they're going to do that and then they see it and they're like, oh, my God. Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah so yeah. there's oohs and ahs. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of very clever theatrical trickery but mm. it's not um, – it's very analogue so it sort of sits within the same time frame of what you're viewing. So uh, so there's nothing jarring with our effects at all. It complements its own aesthetic, really. Mm. Mm. Well, I think we have to have our first musical selection. Ooh, okay. um, so what have you got for us first? Uh, well, actually, I know what you've got for us first, but mm. I, I was actually quite fascinated when, when you sent me this request, can we, can we play this one? And I thought, oh, my goodness, how am I going to find that? But I did. <laughs> oh, Tell me what amazing. it is. Um, this is Ray Ellington uh, doing Old Man River live on The Goon Show. And the episode was the dreaded batter-pudding hurler of Bexhill on Sea. I sort of became obsessed with The Goon Show when I was growing up in Adelaide. And really, that was my introduction to jazz. So I run home from school and um, put the headphones on and sit there listening to, you know, the complete works. Uh, and this is a song that I just adored. I'm as weary as they're going trying Tired of living and feared of time But Old Man River keeps rolling along Thank you. 
something, but don't say nothing. He keeps on rolling, keeps on rolling along. He don't plant taters and he don't plant cotton. And them that plants him is soon forgotten. But old man River, he keeps rolling along. Yes, you and me, we sweat and strain. But the old Lincoln wrecks with pain. Took that barge, lift that bale. Gets a little drunk and you lands in jail. I get weary and sick of trying, tired of living and feared of dying. But old man River keeps rolling along, rolling away, Beck's Hill way. That old man River he keeps rolling along. Fantastic rendition of Old Man River, thanks to Ray Ellington, who made regular appearance on The Goon Show. And that the episode that that was from was the dreaded, i got to get this right, the dreaded batter pudding hurler of Bexhill on Sea. They come up with such wonderful I names. Know. yeah. <laughs> that was the first choice of my guest in the studio today, who is actor Amber McMahon. She is in North by Northwest, the play. Yes, who'd have thought? It's on at the Lyric Theatre. Uh, and uh, you can get tickets by going to northbynorthwesttheplay.com. So, Amber, aren't you like 50 years too young to be a fan <laughs> of the game show? I, know, I don't even know how it would have been like in the house because my mum or dad weren't interested in it. Maybe, maybe I was just reading something and found the tape somewhere. But, yeah, I actually grew up in a service station. So we had moved from Broken Hill and um, so mum and dad ran... Uh, the service station just sort of near my school. and um, In so, Broken Hill? Or uh, no, this was in Adelaide. Right. Yeah, and so I would have to go to the service station every day after school and uh, it's not a right. fun place for a kid. Although, you know, I did learn to enjoy pumping petrol and hanging out in the workshop with all the mechanics. Um, Back but, in the day when the service, when the yeah, people when would pump the petrol for you. Yeah, there was actual yes. service, even <laughs> yes. if it was child labour. Um, and uh, But then, I yeah, when I was sort of old enough, I was um, allowed to, you know, just go home by myself. And uh, yeah. so I'd sort of enter my own little world of goon show and jazz. And You'd fill it with uh, these things. Yeah. And you must have sort of dug the, dug the LP or something out of the I Yeah, like the I, yeah I, can't, I can't recall. And I loved old movies and sort of mm. old TV shows. So I would do that and then I would watch Hogan's Heroes. I mean, like, oh. what a strange child. <laughs> mm, I worry that I had the same childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you mentioned Broken Hill there. So yeah. you, you're actually born in Broken Hill. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. you moved to Adelaide. Uh, I think I was like six. Yeah. Six, all right. So you yeah. don't remember that much about Broken uh, Hill? I do actually mm. because um, when we got to Adelaide, my mum was actually really frightened thinking it was the big city. And so I was so aware of all the freedoms that I had had, you know, in Broken Hill. Being taken and, away. Yeah. Mm. And just like the sense of space and the colours, like um, that ochre and, um, you know, gum trees and expansive space and, um, you know, going out to Silverton and, um, like, we'd get a camel out to Silverton. Wow. And, yeah, go to the pub there and, you know, and playing golf, you know, Dad playing golf on, you know, just red sand dunes basically. So it was sort of like very vivid imagery from that time. And I don't know, like, you know, that there's a country town mentality there but it's, um, it's not sort of – like antiquated or small-minded it's it's yeah it was just really sort of friendly and mm. social very social um 
and uh, people very aware of the history of the place. And uh, anyway, so yeah, when I got to Adelaide, Broken Hill was on my mind for many years. Mm. Yeah. So when does the acting start? Well, I think it might have been the move or something, but I was painfully shy and I couldn't look at people. I would go red if anyone looked at me. I'd sort of break out in a sweat if I had to speak. Um, and uh, so mum <laughs> cruelly uh, put me into the um, amateur theatre show right. down the road. Um, this is on the theory that if it doesn't kill you, it makes y- you stronger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think basically she wanted to be involved, I think. Uh-huh. Um, and there was this melodrama called Two Orphan Maidens, or oh, Virtue Wasn't Meant to Be Easy. And I think mum was like some hussy in the show. And, oh, she um, was in it as well? Well, I think so. Like I'm just, yeah, I'm just remembering like seeing costumes of corsets and stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I was the placard girl with the boo, hiss, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And I was utterly terrified. But I remember as soon as I got out on stage, I felt fine. Mm. And it was just, you know, people were happy and laughing and the light and the colours or something. And then when I'd get off stage again, I'd just be terrified and not be able to speak to anyone again. But over the years, um, you know, the more shows I did, the more accustomed I was to having to actually speak to human beings that, you know, I just became quite okay at it. So do you put that down to anything? Uh, The shyness or the the, the growth? the the fact that you can be shy but then step on stage yeah. and you're, you're you're enriched by the laughter yeah. and the applause and so on? Um, I don't know. Like the the closest I come to understanding it is that art or theatre is a vocation and it's mm. sort of you identify with something in it deep down and it's a way of life rather than um, a job and, uh, yeah, you're sort of connecting with something on various yeah. levels, I'd say. But, yeah, it's sort of a bewitching thing. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether it was something to do with, you know, when you're on stage, you're not you. Yeah, m- so yeah you're maybe. So you're not as self-conscious. It's like the opposite of what yeah, most people would probably yeah. feel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and maybe, I mean, it's definitely a great way to discover you know, all walks of life basically in different ways of thinking and feeling and sort of examining the human experience. Mm. So what you don't know about the world and yourself, you sort of discover through the eyes of someone else, Um, you know, and that I was like, you know, seven or something or eight at the time. So my life experience wasn't extensive at this point. Um, obviously, you, you know, you weren't bringing grew- much to the role. No, I was not bringing much at all to the role. Um, but yeah, I just think it was a way for me to um, feel comfortable with people, actually. Yeah. And then once I felt comfortable with people, then you can't shut me up. So you were doing amateur dramatics, school plays and stuff all, all through school? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was, did yeah. Did you end up being the leading lady in all of the, um, the school productions? Or? I did, yeah. You didn't have to share them? <laughs> no, yeah. I can't, yeah. And I did um, drama at another um, special interest drama school as well. So yeah. I was sort of doubling up and doing productions um, that toured a little bit as well. But I wasn't going to do drama at uni. I was going to do law or forensic science. And um, a friend of mine who I had done drama with outside of school, she was auditioning for the drama centre in Flinders and she said, oh, will you come and audition Um, just for company sort of thing? And I was like, oh, okay. And then (laughs) I kept getting called back and then eventually got in and, and at that point. I think I was just like, oh, well, if it took that long to get into, I might as well do it. Mm. Yeah. So you didn't uh, ever 
set foot in a law school. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I strolled through it. I imagine you doing it. all those law reviews and then yeah, defecting them. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No. I had friends doing that, but no, I would yeah. stroll through the, that part of the university and keep going. So tell me about that, that period in drama school. I mean, what, what are they teaching you? Well, Flinders was great because it doesn't rest upon one uh, ideology. It's mm. sort of um, – because it's also an academic course. You're doing, you know, history of theatre and – you do a whole range of theoretical subjects and then through that you can analyse how those processes work and um, put them into action in your practical work um, and we would do production blocks in um, school hol- uh, university holidays. Mm. So while the teaching staff were encouraging of certain forms and styles, if you found a style or a process that suited you, you were encouraged to um, develop that. So in that way, it was great. And I, you know, I loved the academic part of the course. It was really strict and brutal and hard. And, um, you know, all of those, like the competitive nature of those institutions, you just can't get away from that. And I'm like, that sort of brought up all of my shyness again and Mm. you know anti-social stuff like I just hate engaging in that way um so you know I I, uh, enjoyed the course for what was in the course and enjoyed the classes but culturally I didn't love it and then when I finished I got cast as um Catherine in a show called Proof which is an extraordinarily fantastic play (laughs) and like I this was, is in Adelaide. This is in Adelaide at yeah. uh, State Theatre Company of South Australia. And so when I got into the rehearsal room, of course I was terrified. You know, it was my first professional show. That's and, a big role though. And it's a huge role. It's like role. a two-hander effectively, isn't it? The well, it's, I think there's, there's well, four. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, like – and all the other roles, are, you know, they were played by established actors and, you know, it was a thrill and an honour to be part of this show. So I was, you know, incredibly intimidated. And then during the first week of rehearsal, I was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. This is lovely. Nothing's ever going to be as hard as drama school. And I have, like, that has remained. Except, of course, you know, when you get huge shows that are taxing and there's insane personalities. and But, you know, you you geared up for it by then. Know. Yeah, <laughs> We'll have to talk yes. about some of those insane personalities, <laughs> I think. That was your, basically your first proper gig. I mean, obviously yeah. you've done all the amateur dramatics and stuff, yeah, but that yeah. was, that was yeah. the first main one. So it must have been a very competitive role to get, or, or did, they, it did was. they actually approach you? Yeah, no, it was auditioned extensively. And, um, yeah, again, I just sort of really identified with the role, but also... I don't know, like you can get a feeling where you're completely relaxed inside that role. It's like, yeah, mm. I know who this person is. And I felt that from the get-go on that. So apart from the fact that arguably it's easier because it's less um, confrontational perhaps it, when you're yeah. actually doing the, the pro gig rather than yeah. uh, in the course, were there any other revelations about doing that professional job for the first time and, and in terms of interacting with the other actors and creating um, the, the parts? I, I think I loved how... Like being introduced to how collaborative the art form is Mm. and um, when everyone's there autonomously, there's great uh, sharing of information and sort of research and nutting things out on the floor and everyone, you know, coming in with their A game basically and, you know, working to a standard where everyone's making each other better. So, and, and that, you know, that only sort of grew throughout my career of, Mm. Everyone you work with, you learn something from. And it's one of the only places of work where it's 
intergenerational as well. So you're sharing the space with someone in their 60s, 70s, 20s, you know, like so there's um, there's fantastic perspective going along, uh, going on. But also I think what I love is learning how the craft sits and so uh, an older actor represents the craft in a different way to a younger actor and so coming in as a rookie you're witnessing someone who's trod the boards for you know however many years and you're like oh that's the legacy of the craft and that's something you cannot learn at drama school because Mm. you're only working with your peers but this idea that you yeah you get this window into history basically and you go what are the values that we want to uphold in this art form and how best do we serve them on stage mm-hmm. in 2002 you win the Adelaide Critics Circle award for emerging artist is that related to proof or i think that was yeah i think that was um through that role yeah i was also working a lot with windmill performing arts at the time and um we were making some pretty wacky shows um (laughs) so i got a great run at like incredibly diverse roles across those years in adelaide but that's a pretty powerful start i mean as well as getting proof i mean just you're just working yeah i know yeah that doesn't doesn't happen to a lot of actors does it i was yeah thrilled and Um, I was also working at um, this nightclub um, called Minky and they had these underground uh, arts nights on Sunday nights and it was called Opera and um, a few of us were asked to contribute work and so you'd have to make things up and um, like little acts and so I had an act there called uh, Audrey um, and Audrey is like a really naughty Audrey Hepburn uh-huh. yeah and so and so it's got you know full piano accompaniment and so, you know, like I was writing and developing work as well. So I think that puts you in good stead because you don't feel bereft of work because you're yeah. creating it. And I think work begets work, basically. Mm. Well, some more music now. And uh, we're going to move from the world of jazz into, well, Schubert Leader. What's mm. this one? Well, this production, where this song sort of comes from, was sort of a life-changing show for me. Um, so it was an eight-hour opera with Barry Kosky um, called The Lost Echo. And again, you know, coming out of uh, drama school and then doing a few shows in uh, Adelaide, doing a bit more study overseas, coming back, like the Actors' Company was an entirely new and different education. It almost sort of solidified everything that we'd learnt, but... I learnt the craft in a completely different way and I'd never really listened to classical music before and all of a sudden we're doing an eight-hour opera. Barry is one of the most incredibly energetic, infectious personalities I have ever come across. He is, like, sublime to work with and for. It was a show that we just kind of committed our lives to. Every waking hour was thinking and dreaming this massive opera. So it started with La Callisto, and he fed in some sort of Cole Porter numbers into that. And then there were um, the next two hours were uh, female uh, monologues from or like Greek goddesses. Um, and then the next two hours uh, was the back eye. <laughs> and then the final two hours was all of Schubert's Winterizer. And the imagery put on stage to all these things and this through line that was woven through it by him was absolutely avant-garde, excellent, crazy, incredibly entertaining. (laughs) Right, well, let's take a listen. (laughs) 
Lehrmann from Schubert's Winterreiser. In that performance, we heard tenor Hans Hotter and pianist Gerald Moore. That was the choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Amber McMahon. She's taking on the role of, well, one of Hitchcock's most famous femme fatales, Eve Kendall, in North by Northwest. You can go to North by Northwest, the play, to get your tickets. What a mammoth thing to have eight hours. Is that all in one hit, an eight-hour yeah, production? You, yeah, you can, uh, you can view it that way. So... Um on Mondays, we would do four hours, Tuesdays, four hours, uh, and then Wednesday, we do the whole thing, so you can view it as one piece. Mm. Thursday and Friday, four hours a pop, and then uh, Saturday, eight hours Goodness. again. And that's not the only eight-hour type thing you've done, no. because you do War of the Roses <laughs> with the Sydney Theatre Company. We did War of the Roses. Same kind of thing. Yeah, another eight-hour so epic. So explain what that was. Um, War of the Roses is all of Shakespeare's history plays condensed, obviously, um, otherwise it would be about 24. Um, <laughs> and so I think it's uh, Richard II, Henry IV, V and VI, and Richard III. Uh, and that one uh, was directed by Benedict Andrews and a very sort of abstract um, version and the edit was very unusual as well. So, so did they do the edit or was there already kind of an No, Benno edit? did the edit, yeah. Right, wow. And then I did Angels in America in, I think, 2015, which is another eight-hour show. <laughs> but I enjoy it. Like, it sounds taxing and arduous, and it sort of is, particularly if it is an opera, you know, that's yeah. – and, and there was a lot of choreography in War of the, uh, in Lost Echo as well. Um, I should point out that it's not North by Northwest, which is eight hours long. No, 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 no. <laughs> that is a short, sharp and shiny two with interval. With interval. Yeah, sensible. and it goes like the clappers. <laughs> I'm sure. Short show is a good show. Yes, yes. sorry. <laughs> but apart, from, apart from these ones that you did. Yeah, exactly. It's either, yeah, durational or brief. That's yes. what I do. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like in these um, epics, I, I think, it, you know, it's it's – Great for the actors because we so wholeheartedly delve into an entire world mm. and we are, you know, we are spending our whole day in these roles 
with our creatives telling this story. And so there's an immersion into that world that far exceeds, you know, kind of coming and going on something. Um, but for the audience as well, they're, they're witnessing something en masse and as the hours progress and they're absorbing the work, they're also going from sitting with strangers to sort of sitting with vaguely familiar people and so the way that they start to interact over intervals becomes really lovely and often strangers you know who began as strangers will start to talk to people quite intimately about the work Mm. through those last um, few intervals and it's fantastic because you know rarely do we have spaces anymore where people like fallout spaces after shows where people stick around and talk to other audience members people often go home and it's because you know, the way that Sydney works, licensing, I don't know what it is, but venues don't tend to stay open. No. But if they did, people would stick around and talk and then meet the performers and we could talk to audience, you know. So anyway, it's those, those long shows, it happens in a way that, you know, we don't see often, which is really beautiful. Mm. Now that mention of War of the Roses, that was part of your time with the Sydney Theatre Company and yeah. the Actors Company. Yeah. So tell me about that experience. That that was just a kind of a moment in time when Kate Blanchett was the artistic director, is that uh, right? First of all, um, it started with Robin Nevin. So she created the Actors Company after receiving, after kind of championing the idea of an ensemble and finally getting the funding from the state government uh, to do so. And so she put the team together and then after her first year she left, well, it was, you know, her time to leave the company and um, so Kate and Andrew took over at that point. Yeah, and then Kate stepped in to be part of the Actors' Company for our last year in War of the Roses. So... In that situation, it's almost like you're working in rep, aren't you? Because oh, you keep absolutely that you're using yeah. fewer actors in, yeah. in more productions. Yeah, and that's you know sort of what I mean again by that second education. Mm. It was the rigor of it as well. You know, like you just had to be like you had to live in a certain way that allowed you to have that much energy sustained over that period of time. Because by the time we were um, performing I think we'd get a couple of weeks run of just clean performance and then we would go into rehearsal for the next show um and so you're sort of tapping into that world and then doing the show at night um so there was yeah little crossovers along the way but they were all epic shows because basically for the first time in quite some time Australia had an actors ensemble a company and so when directors were offered shows there they're like, wait a minute, I get 12 actors and a fantastic budget. I'm going to do my swan song. You know, so all the shows that we did were huge. They were um, shows that directors don't tend to be able to do mm. um, under current, you know, funding structures. It was so full on and taxing. And But, you know, you get better at warm-up. You get better at what to eat to peak your energy. You get better at absorbing a lot of material. Mm. Um, You get better at diplomacy inside a rehearsal room and people, you know, are finding it very, very stressful. Um, So, yeah, and you you get better at your craft. I mean, it's a, you know, we're all just uh, an instrument and so we're, you know, fine-tuning over that time. And, yeah, we call it show fitness. When you're back-to-back like that, you you get, yeah, you just, uh, you're warmer. So what was Kate Blanchett like to work with? She was fantastic. Like she's such a um a fantastic craftsperson, you know, like she's she's meticulous and um her work ethic is astonishing. So, you know, for someone like that to be in our ensemble, again, that culture just bleeds into the entire group and so, you know, it's always exciting having a movie star in, in your ensemble and, mm. like, in your show and wherever we'd, you know, 
when we're on tour, uh, we'd certainly get some great offers for like events and parties yeah. and things so like that. So you never get, it never feels like she's the like completely overshadowing everybody else. No, not no because not of, deliberately. Just no, because of uh, naturally I mean, who she is. Yeah, know? I mean naturally that that happens, and of course people will come to the show wanting to see her, hmm. but she's not that sort of actor. So she is very much about the play and the story and the world of the show. So she's not solely driven through her role. It's very much how her role contributes to the whole and obviously she wants to be in a good show, not just being um, a very strong performer in a cast that isn't working to the same level, Mm. basically. And I think, you know, when people do invest and work hard you just love the play even more. So then, you know, you find things in it that you may not have seen. And I don't know, she just brings a real, like she's very gracious and, she, yeah, it's, it's brilliant watching her work because, you know, you take those lessons and run with them. Mm. Now, it was actually before the Actors' Company, though, that you, or your time with the Actors' Company anyway, that you were in New York yes. to do some study. Now, that must yeah. have been, uh, well, one thing or another. I, I can imagine a set of extremes yes. where either it was terrifying or just yeah. incredible. Yeah, it was. Um, as I was, like, landing, like the plane was landing in New York, I remember looking at that giant city and thinking, what am I doing? I'm from Broken Hill. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> yes, it rather is the contrast to moving to Adelaide yeah. makes that uh, pale into yeah. significance. I thought Adelaide was big. <laughs> Egad. Um, um, and uh, and then, you know, once I was in the taxi hooning off to, I think I was staying in the East Village, I just adored it. Like the energy of the city is incredible. So I was doing some study at the Stella Adler Company and a company called the City Company. And Stella Adler is very sort of Stanislavski-based and um, naturalism, you know, so I was sort of flexing those muscles there. And then the City Company is a bit more avant-garde and experimental. So, you know, I was kind of working in that way. But then also having the time of my life in New York and (laughs) dancing till dawn in the meatpacking district every night and meeting all these amazing people and, you know, like – the other thing about I find about New Yorkers is they want to hook you up with other people. Like mm-hmm. so, and I, whenever you say in Australia, like you know, I'm a performer or an actor, people often say, "Oh, what would I have seen you in?" And in New York, you go, "Oh, yeah, I'm a performer or an actor," and they're like, "Oh, you got to meet Tony over here. Get over here," you know. And they want to hook you up to find other ways in which you know that you can do the thing that you love doing. Mm. And um, I just, yeah, it was just such an incredible personal education there as well and met amazing people and you know I got taken out of my dinky place that I was staying in and put into like a loft in Soho and just met all these yeah incredible characters um so that was a scholarship well worth getting were you wanting to try and uh, develop a career there as well I already had work back in um, Australia. To come back to. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I don't think I thought that way, but I did think I would love to come back here. Yeah. Mm. You could do anything there and it would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I I would, yeah. I could do go-go dancing. I could do, you know, stand-up. I don't mind. Yeah. Now, our next bit of music is some Tchaikovsky. Yes. Violin concerto. There's not something I, I expected to, you, to, you to bring me. Why have no. we got this one? Well, we, I guess this is a detour from um, the topic of conversation. But um, <laughs> in 2015, I think it was, or 16, 
Um, I won a return trip to Italy for two and a 10-day Mediterranean cruise. As you do. As you do. <laughs> like, every time I tell people this, they're like, oh, my God, someone actually does win these does, things. Does, does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I had entered... How many tickets did you buy? <laughs> well, this is it. It was only one. It was at Italian Festa on Norton Street. And I was staying in Leichhardt at the time with my dear friend, uh, Emron. And um, he was like, you need to make friends with Leichhardt uh, because, you know, I didn't know the area very well. And I was like, fine, I'll make friends with Leichhardt. And the next day was Italian Festa. And so we went downstairs and um, got into it and ate the cheese and drank the wine and did the tarantella and, you know, like um, had, you know, chats with everyone. And we were walking past a, a raffle tent. And I thought, well, when in Rome. And so I filled out the little raffle uh, ticket and my phone was going flat. And so I said, um, Emron, can I put your phone number down on this? And he was like, absolutely. And then we um, went, uh, we did some more things, looked at some more things and then found ourselves at a place called Aperitivo, fabulous, forecasting into the future. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just got this feeling and I was like, get your phone out. It's about to ring. And he got his phone out and it started ringing. So he went outside to answer it. And I could see him through the big double doors and he had this shocked look on his face and he came back and I said, did I win? But I thought what I had entered was um, for a hamper of cheese and meats. And I was like, did I win the hamper of cheese and meats? And he was like, no. And I was like, what? What did I get that feeling for then? He's like, but you did win a return trip to Italy for two and a 10-day Mediterranean cruise and you better be taking me. <laughs> and I was like, well, we had a pact. So I did. And uh, it was incredible, absolutely incredible. So we we spent some time in Rome and then we um, I had this other dear friend, his name's Marco Chiappi, he's another actor. He used to spend half the year in Italy and half the year here. And uh, he had a villa in Tuscany. I didn't know him too well at this point, but I had said, hey, I'm going to be in Italy. <laughs> Are you going to be there in your Tuscan villa? And he said, well, yes, I am. And I said, well, I think we should pop by. And he said, I think so too. So we stayed there for a few days, which was like something out of With Nail and I, uh, because he's quite acerbic and um, a bit sort of delightfully pompous and and Emron can be verbose and um, argumentative. So <laughs> they're just like yelling at each other on the Tuscan plains and I'm, you know, making dinner and listening to music. And then on one day he said, would you like to go to Siena? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I can drive from the gate of the villa to the wall of Siena in the duration of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto in D major. And so it was our soundtrack from... Uh, <laughs> grieving Chianti to Siena and as every sort of swell in the music occurred we took bends and sweeps around the countryside it was utterly amazing
And Sophie Mutter, the violinist there with Andre Previn conducting the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra for just a part of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. The choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Am McMahon, and that was the soundtrack to, well, Hurtling from their villa to Siena. I, I don't, I'm not sure I believe a word of that story, Am. <laughs> it's all fun. I mean, winning a holiday like I that, how, how ridiculous. It doesn't happen until it happens. <laughs> until it happens. <laughs> You've done film and TV, but the lion's share of your bio is certainly the theatre work. Uh, and that's also where you know your long, long list of awards and nominations lie. Why are you drawn to the theatre as your primary form of performance? Well, I've certainly you know come up through the ranks in theatre. Um, so it's been all I've known for a long time. But having said that, even working, you know, a teensy bit in TV mm. and we did a film called Girl Asleep, which we had already done like a stage version of it. So um, that was like a fantastic foray into film because it sort of had the same creative team. But I think why I love the theatre so much and sort of choose to remain in it, it's it's sort of like it's a life, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the way you you live is kind of to serve that art form. So, you know, it's you get into having a healthy body and you read a lot and, um, you know, you need a lot of energy to do the work. So, you know, your interests tend to become um, very focused around that, which is, you know, a lovely way to live and sort of, you know, they're great things to invest in. But also like the work itself, you you meet new people all the time. You, you're you plunged into a new world every three months or whatever, mm. you know, um, whenever you're, you know, back into the rehearsal room and you're all contributing to this story. And so you're applying craft and rich emotional life 
to this story that you all believe is important to tell and hope that the audience hear it with um, compassion and uh, a way to kind of interpret how other people live. So, Mm. you know, I believe in theatre as something that aids society basically it's it's not just entertainment it's sort of you know it's it's odd and ancient and you're sitting in a dark room with strangers listening to something and empathizing in a way with pure freedom because no one else is watching you or listening to you while you do that so um there's a sort of privacy to how you're associating with that work intellectualizing it emoting with it um it's really you know it's really quite special and so if you love that you work with that in mind when you're creating shows and and you're constantly learning as well you learn from different people but you um with every play um there's new information new research that you have to do yeah content changes all the time Mm. form changes all the time you know it's not just the well-made play i just think there's a lot to sink your teeth into really Mm. and everyone well everyone who i've come across that works in that way i find really kind and interesting. I mean, with film and TV, there's the opportunity to do a few takes and yeah, then, that, then yeah. they'll choose the best one. Maybe not the one you think is the best, but nevertheless, that choice gets made. And that performance is kind of locked there yeah, forever. Yeah. Right? Theatre, you're doing the same thing. Yeah. Sort of, basically. Yeah. You're doing the same thing every night for three months or however long yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Is there a line where you, you have to make sure the performance doesn't end up coming out as sort of rote and mechanical yeah, like when definitely. you're doing it for the 50th time? Yeah. How do you, how yeah. Do you break through that? When I, when I first started, the idea of repetition used to really bug me. So, you know, we'd get into the run, we'd open, you know, after the first week I'd be like, oh, my God, how can I possibly do this again? And it wasn't until I kind of... Um, I think, you know, was part of the actors' company and I was just learning from older actors who, of course, have been doing this over and over and over and over again for so long, is that I just I, I just had misunderstood the craft slightly. And so it's not about replicating that performance. It's about having that story living and breathing exactly in that moment, on that night, with that audience. And as soon as you're aware of that and awake to it and all of your senses are awake to it, you read it differently. And I can't get goosebumps talking about it because mm. there's something in the air that you're reacting to and it's the audience and how they are en masse what they're putting out there. And that sounds a little bit esoteric, but it's actually not. It's palpable. And some audiences respond um, to humour really uh, enthusiastically and some people you go oh it's a quiet night and they're thinkers you know and right. and so because they're feeding off each other as well uh, as well as feeding yeah off mm-hmm. yeah and it's amazing what comes out of the group and that that hits us and then we subtly respond to that and go oh okay they're real thinkers so clarity of the story is paramount you know and if you get a, a laughing audience you go oh great they're responding to those comedic moments so we can sort of just push into them a little more and have yeah. a bit more fun with them. Even like the look in each other's eyes on stage is is different once you're open to it. So mm. you you know if someone's present or not and there's a way to make people present on stage mm. if there's a concerted effort to really be telling that story in that moment on that night. Mm. And it's electric. It's yeah. fun. You talked before about, you know, how, obviously how collegiate, you know, making theatre, mm. making, making the, the product is. And, you, you know, you said Kate Blanchett was so delightful and, and generous to, to work with. 
You also touched on something earlier that, you know, there can be some nightmares out there as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm not asking for names because, no. you know, you need to be able to work again. Yes, with them. yes, indeed. But, but what, are, what are the sorts of things that they do that, that other actors might do, which is the most off-putting? Well, I think it all comes down to vulnerability. And so, you're, you know, you're in a room, um, you're being asked to access things that might be uncomfortable. Um, you're putting yourself out there. It's often very awkward for the first few weeks. Um, you know, new material, you're not knowing your lines very well, mm. you know, having to go to places quite early. There's an awkwardness and vulnerability to it that would that makes anyone uncomfortable. So when you feel like that and there's also tension in the room and difficulty in the room and, you know, flaring personalities – People can either respond well or incredibly poorly. And when it's but when it's poorly, like yeah. there is still an understanding that we're in deep emotional territory. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, the, our theatre culture has changed over the last, you know, say five, ten years, where it no longer condones inappropriate behaviour or aggressive behaviour. That is fantastic. Mm. But it won't overdue, overdue, massively overdue. But it, it's sort of like. It doesn't take away the fear of the work and um, so people just have to check that differently. Yeah. Um, we're all learning um, better ways to manage uh, the way uh, in which we access those difficult things. <laughs> that was my most diplomatic answer thus far. Fair enough. <laughs> what about directors? Is there, a, is there a style of direction that you respond to better? Yeah, I've been very lucky to have really wonderful directors. I can't think of anyone who I haven't enjoyed working with. You know, there are a few that stand out to me because of um, how I like to work, and that is just, you know, gregarious personalities, like full of humour um, and willing to try really odd things in the room, like not really um, necessarily sticking to a linear <laughs> schedule and this scene and this scene and this scene. Like you can break for a while and start talking about something that has absolutely nothing to do with anything and lose an hour, but somehow something from that will feed its way back mm. into rehearsal or the production in really unpredictable ways. And I love that because you're not getting – uh, sort of a first response, you're getting this really tangential consideration and it's irreverent. I also love work that breaks form, you know, trying to find other ways to tell the story. But, yeah, when, an, when a director is like a fantastic auteur and leader and loves the work, yeah, you kind of feel like everyone's drawing towards the same vision, mm. even if the way you're getting there is all over the place. Yeah. It sounds too like, I mean, with, with film and TV, you know, obviously there's rehearsal and there's preparation yeah. side, but it sounds like there's more fermenting in a good way, yeah. you know, uh, maturing. Yeah, absolutely. In, in theatrical Yeah. And, roles. you know, you even get, uh, with new work, you get developments as well, and they're fantastic because you'll do like two weeks and then come back maybe four months later and do another two weeks. And that's, is and that then, sort of what happened with North by Northwest? Yeah, it did, but it was sort of like once once um, they knew that it would work, that yes, you can put a crop duster on stage. <laughs> on stage. Yes, you can climb Mount Rushmore in stilettos, might I add. Um, <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, then, you know, basically the train left the station on when that was going to be programmed. Yeah. 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 But in terms of the development, it, it, it's, it's, yeah. that, it's, the, it's the dipping your toe in the water, yeah. seeing if it yeah. works. And yeah, and the maturation of the idea. So, mm. yeah, with new work, you do get those developments and then people think about it for six months and are like, oh, now I'm just all over the material. It's great. Mm, yeah. Fantastic. Well, our final choice is something which is quite fantastic and totally, again, totally unexpected. I love the music that you're, you're bringing today. Oh, good. Um, 
what what is this? Um, <laughs> this song is just it's so beautiful. Every time I hear it, I smile. I think it's um, it's just like this happy, breezy, easygoing, like in the musicality of it anyway. Um, and uh, when we were doing our first production of North by Northwest um, in Melbourne, um, I have a friend there who's a DJ and he introduced me to this song and it sort of became my little personal anthem uh, for the show. So I thought it was a nice sort of full circle moment to come back to when we first did the show and the music that was in my mind at the time. And so I'd get up and do my yoga to this song and you know have it playing when I got back and if anything you know got a difficult or tense or I was nervous you know I'd pop that on and I don't know it just makes your shoulders pop shoulder is popping to that. Mine certainly is. Ellis and Tom with Aguas de Marco. A fabulous bit of Latin music there. The final choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Amber McMahon. Amber, in the parallel universe where you're not an actress, 
What's that Amber McMahon doing with herself? Or doesn't that bear thinking about? Oh, well, um, it doesn't bear thinking about. But um, if I had to force myself to... Um, well, you'd be doing law, I suppose. Yeah, well, oh, God, no. <laughs> um, I've, I've actually become incredibly obsessed with Formula One. <laughs> and, um, well, also, when I was living in Adelaide, I um, had this bizarre little period of time where I was tour managing in a social way the Mercedes racing team for the classic Grand Prix, which is the Grand Prix that precedes the um, Formula One. And so I was racing around in like vintage Mercedes cars through the Adelaide Hills, um, not driving them. Unfortunately, I was um, navigating, but I got to wear the full, you know, upholstered racing suit, which was excellent. Um, <laughs> the outfit. Yeah, the important. outfit. Yeah, the costume, the costuming. Um, and uh, and I sort of, you know, forgot about that. And then, yeah, just in like that Netflix series that um, has um, just recently been produced, Drive to Survive, I have become obsessed. So I would say Formula One driver. Well, we have to finish off with uh, something from about North by Northwest. I mean, the other iconic thing about the film, which as well as Crop Dusters and Mount Rushmore and the rest of it, is the score. Um, can you are you able to integrate that into the production as well? Yeah, and that's you know that's part of the show. I mean, everyone remembers how incredibly um, moody that music is, and it sort of governs the emotional journey of the characters as well. So thankfully, we have um, the Bernard Herrmann score in the show, um, carefully adapted by uh, Ian MacDonald, but it, it really, you know, it's, it's visceral, that soundtrack, and yeah. Um, yeah, I think people, you know, love it. This is a show where it's not just the content that's appealing, it's the form. So I urge people to come just to see how this is done in the theatre because it does, uh, like, it makes use of the space and all of the um, theatrical ways to tell stories beautifully. Mm. Well, I really look forward to seeing it. Amy McMahon, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. a great pleasure. Thank you. Actor and perhaps frustrated Formula One driver, Anna McMahon. She's appearing in the stage adaptation of North by Northwest, which is on at the Lyric from the 9th of March. For more information and for tickets, go to northbynorthwesttheplay.com. That's all for In Conversation for today. Find us at 2mbs5musicsydney.com slash inconversation to revisit past editions. And you can subscribe via your preferred podcast provider. Just search for 2MBS In Conversation and do remember to leave a rating and review. It helps other like-minded people find the show. I'm Simon Moore and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.